Meditation is the work of the mind, Saito Utejaniya acknowledges. And he says that the work of awareness is just to know. But he acknowledges that awareness alone is not enough. Because the purpose of practice is to grow in wisdom. And it is the work of wisdom to understand what is skillful and unskillful. I want to speak about these statements about practice. And the first is that meditation is the work of the mind. As you sit there, listening to this talk, and even now, if you direct your attention to what you feel in the body, the pressure of your buttocks on the cushion, the coolness of the air, maybe some lingering uh, residual aches from the day, just this very paying attention is the work of the mind. The body doesn't know how it feels. It is the mind that knows how the body feels. And it is the work of meditation or awareness to know or to recognize what the mind knows. The mind knows coolness. When we recognize coolness, it is the work of awareness that does it. All that is known is known by the activity of the mind. What activity? Even the simple experience of the coolness of the air takes a massive amount of mental activity in order for us to register it, to acknowledge it. We need to pay attention. So there's some initiating of energy in the mind to attend to the chosen object the experience of coolness in the present moment. So there's paying attention. But there's also the directing of the mind to actually touch or receive the coolness. So there's a certain movement of mind, an opening of the mind to receive this experience of coolness. And when we feel the coolness, there is the feeling of, well, this unique flavor that we call and we all recognize as coolness. So there's attending to, there's energizing, there's directing and receiving, there's feeling. There's also the perception that recognizes this coolness as a familiar experience. When I say coolness, 
You all know what I mean. And you all can tune into your immediate experience of coolness because we have experienced this unique flavor of experience previously, had it called coolness, or learned that its name is coolness, and we now recognize it quite easily. But this activity of recognition is a function of the mind. So too, the word coolness is a concept that we have assigned to this experience. Dredging your mind for the right name or the right word to express the knowledge of your experience is also another activity of mind, the conceiving activity of mind. And then we have a relationship to it. Do you like it? Do you dislike it? Do you find it pleasant or unpleasant? Whatever we experience, whatever we know that we're experiencing, the mind has to massage it into knowledge in order for us to recognize what our experience is. There's just a tremendous amount of mental activity going on. Meditation is to know all that. Meditation is to know or to recognize all these activities of mind. The feeling, the attending, the uh, conceiving, the perceiving, the liking, the disliking, or the relational, uh, the relationship to it. Because the mind can recognize, or I should say, awareness can recognize any of these mental activities. When we pay attention, we will inevitably or ultimately see all of these activities in the mind. The work of awareness is just to know. Awareness or mindfulness, as we use the words here, is a presence of mind. It is the ability to attend to the present moment, the present moment's experience. Mindfulness has the function to remember. To remember. What is it that we remember? What is it that mindfulness remembers? Mindfulness remembers the present moment. It remembers presence of the present moment or knowing in the present moment. Well, this sounds kind of, uh, yeah, what's the big deal? But remember, how many times your mind wandered today in thought, daydream, fantasy, and while the mind was wandering, there was no mindfulness to remember to take note of it. The mind knew those thoughts. 
because we can recall them when the wandering mind comes to an end and we can take a quick scan back and we can see all those thoughts. But during the time that it was happening, there was no remembering of the present moment. There was no recognition of them as they happened. This is mindfulness, the function to remember. Now, when I ask you to feel the coolness of the air in the room, it's easy to do that. Or if I ask you to feel the sensations in your hands, it's easy to do that. What's difficult is to remember to do that through all our waking hours. When we're reminded, or when we're prompted, or when we remind ourselves, having internalized the instructions, then it's not difficult to be mindful. But it's difficult to be mindful in every moment from wake up to sleep. The challenge is in being continuous. And a large part of the practice is to internalize the instruction, to internalize the cues that we hear that remind us to be present, to remember the present moment. You may find yourself reciting the instructions you hear. Pay attention to this, take note of that, go back to the breath, name this, do this, do that. And this is how we Having heard the instructions, it's how we activate them by internalizing the instructions. When I first started practicing with Saito Upandita, we were reporting to him every day, and my report time was 2 o'clock, and I was following another person who was giving their report at 1.50, and this woman happened to be uh, having a beginner's luck, we say. She was really doing quite well on the retreat. And I was doing quite difficult. I was having a, a very difficult time. And one day while I was waiting in the hallway outside the room, the door to Zayda's room was open, and I heard her excitedly uh, exclaiming to uh, Zayda that, she had been remembering her past lives and what she was been, had been doing in those past lives. And she was very excited and she came bounding out of the room with just a tremendous amount of energy. And uh, I wasn't remembering any past lives, but anyway, I felt kind of disheartened by her enthusiasm and success, so to speak. And so I went into Saito and I did my bows and then in just utter uh, kind of self-conscious, self-condemning agony, I kind of blurted out to him, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering our past lives or something? <laughs> and he said, no. Remembering this life. That's all. Just remembering this very moment of life. That's the practice. And whatever comes with that moment, fine. In some ways, it's so simple. And we can see that it's simple to just acknowledge what our present experience is. 
It's simple, but it's not easy. It's not easy to do continuously, and that's the challenge. Awareness or mindfulness has the characteristic of not floating away. Now, what does that mean? Just think about how many experiences you had today that you never even registered. You know, the temperature was being felt all day. The eyes have been open most of the day. The ears have been hearing all day. The body has been feeling sensations all day. The mind has been thinking thoughts all day. Most of them go by unnoticed. Most of those moments of experience go by unnoticed because they just float away. Mindfulness is not letting them float away, meaning mindfulness touches them. Mindfulness sees them. Mindfulness uh, sticks to them in the sense, not in the sense of attachment, but it tastes them. Mindfulness is intimate with each of those experiences and registers it as something that's been experienced, something that has been known. When we live kind of on the surface of things and we're not paying very careful attention, life goes by quite well. We don't have to, we don't have to help life go by. It just it goes by all by itself. And we can miss it, just as we've missed so many experiences today and every day. Mindfulness doesn't let that happen. Mindfulness notices what is being known in each moment. Again, Saito Upandita says, life without mindfulness is like food without salt. There's a texture, but not much flavor. And so too with a life without mindfulness. When we develop, or as we develop awareness or mindfulness, we know it, or we can see it manifest when we come face to face with the moment's experience. When we, when we actually come face to face and see, oh, this is what is being known in this moment. I think it must be the same here in Australia as it is back in the States, but you know when you watch the news or you listen to the news, there's an event, there's a newsworthy event, there's something. And they show a clip or they make an announcement about a piece of experience, which takes, you know, 10 seconds, 30 seconds. And then they have the talking heads come on and tell you what you just saw. And they go on for 10 minutes, putting their spin or their interpretation on what you and they saw. Mindfulness doesn't add spin. Mindfulness sees things as they are. That's it, period, end of story. No comment, no judgment, no spin, no flavor, no attribution of added value. It just sees this is the way it is. End of story. 
this capacity or this uh, non-spinness really is a function of a mental factor or a state of mind that accompanies awareness. And from the uh, Pali, it's called ujukata. Ujukata is translated as straightness of mind. It means when mindfulness is present, the mind is straight. It just goes straight to the experience and sees it. That's it. No spin. That sounds fine, but what this means is we're no longer able to deceive ourselves. We can no longer put our favorable interpretation on the events of our life, the experiences of our life, what we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we think. We can't spin it to fit our personality or what we expect or who we think we are because mindfulness has or does not allow any spin. And so sometimes it's kind of confrontational. Sometimes the awareness, the mindfulness, sees elements of our experience, aspects of our personality that frankly we'd rather not know. And yet we can't hide it. So often people come in to you know, talk about their experiences and what they report is the judgment that they're having of their self or their self-criticism or their self-blaming or their sense of guilt or you know, the anxiety they feel over things that they've done or said. And these feelings are often hidden they're kind of undercover. They're enwrapped in our you know, happy story of our life. But when we see them without spin, when we see them with mindfulness, there's no pretending otherwise. We see this is, this is the way it is, or this is the way it was when we recover memories from the past. In this manifesting as facing the object, it guards the mind. It guards the mind from adding a defilement to the experience. Mindfulness prevents defilements. We can no longer you know, lay a flavor, an acceptable flavor on anything. We just see it as it is. Mindfulness arises with, without indulgence, without judgment, without avoidance, without an opinion. It just sees things as they are. Now the interesting thing about awareness is how do we get it? How do, I mean, we've been trying to cultivate mindfulness or continuity of awareness and mindfulness for a few days now. Have you noticed what causes a moment to be mindful? Well, one thing you've all noticed is today, on the third day of the retreat, there's a little more continuity to awareness. Maybe not much, but a little. 
certainly more than when we first started Saturday morning. What this tells you is that it is possible to generate a certain momentum to mindfulness because mindfulness builds on itself. One of the proximate causes of mindfulness is a prior moment of mindfulness. And so when there is a moment of mindfulness, you're more likely to be present and mindful for the next moment. And we can see that in the gradual development of momentum in our practice, greater continuity. I know, there are still plenty of lapses, but how else do we account for this increasing and noticeable continuity of mindfulness? The second proximate cause for awareness or mindfulness is clear perception. Perception is the capacity of the mind to take note of the uniqueness of this moment. It is what notices the unique characteristic of this moment. It's being able to distinguish an apple from an orange because you look at it and the shape and the color, the mind taking note of the shape and the color recognizes an apple and recognizes an orange and their difference. Or you can even look at two apples, same tree, same year, same size, same everything. And the mind in its subtlety of perception can distinguish which one is ripest or is preferred. This capacity to make these very refined, discerning distinctions is the function of perception. Someone came in today and was talking about their experience. They said last night after the talk, or after the last sitting, I can't remember which, went outside and was walking on the, the pathway and noticed someone up ahead kind of slip off the pathway and kind of stumble, stumble or just uh, you know, stepped off half on and half off the edge of the pathway. And, 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 and took a second look and realized, no, that wasn't someone, that was the kangaroo. You know, the big kangaroo that was outside? And it took a split second, or even maybe a couple of seconds, for the perception of the mind to distinguish the difference between, you know, a human form in the dark or kangaroo form in the dark. The mind wants to assume that it's human, but perception won't allow us to have that mistaken perception. Perception works automatically. It's not a voluntary thing. It's a functional activity of the mind. When we're very clear, perceiving accurately what this moment's experience is, it conditions mindfulness of the next moment. Okay. If perception, clear perception, is such a notable factor in generating awareness, how can we strengthen or enhance clear perception? There's a technique 
for strengthening clear perception, labeling. When you pay attention, it's very common that we can know that we're paying attention without really distinguishing what it is we're attending to because we're not clearly perceiving the unique flavor of each moment of awareness. The perception is weak. We're just kind of letting it slide by without taking note of the distinguishing characteristics. And so perception is weak and mindfulness is also weak. But if we make the effort to steady the attention enough, connect with the experience, sustain the attention on the experience in order to be able to recognize it, meaning clear perception, and we can name it labeling, then that's, that is a, an, an, an indication of strong, clear perception. So we suggest sometimes that you name your experience. It's a technique, it's a tool, but it's a tool for developing or strengthening perception, which is a proximate cause for the continuity of awareness. Now we do this kind of at a uh, kind of a, an initial stage of practice because so much of what mindfulness discovers or uncovers in our practice, some of it's familiar, but a lot of it isn't. And when new phenomena comes into awareness, we have to spend some time with it to recognize, is this familiar or is this new? Is this something unique? Or what is the uniqueness of this experience? And so labeling or naming your experience is a helpful tool. There comes a time in practice, of course, when the recognition of all that is arising is quite quick. We've seen all the kangaroos, we've seen all the people, we've seen all the mental states, we've seen all the sensations in the body. We know, we've seen them all, we've distinguished them all. The recognition, perception, is so quick, we can't keep up with naming or labeling them. But initially, very helpful. In every moment, something is being known. Different teachers and in different meditative traditions, they direct the mind but they direct our attention to recognize different aspects of what is being known. Some will say, okay, in every moment you're breathing, pay attention to the breath. Some will say, in every moment you're sitting, pay attention to the sitting. In every moment there's hearing, pay attention to hearing. As a way of turning the mind to the present moment. What you pay attention to can be anything. It can be the breath, it can be sensations, it can be sounds, it can be no sounds, it can be thoughts. But in every moment, something is being known. 
what is it that's being known? There's many ways to describe or to look at what is being known. And the way I was talking about it the other morning is when we have a chosen object, when we have a preferred object or experience to pay attention to, we call it the primary object. You might use the breath at the nostrils. You might use the rise and fall of the abdomen. You might use the, the lifting and lowering of the hand. But if that's your chosen primary object, that's what we pay attention to. But sometimes, as you know, the, the attention wanders or some other experience calls our attention and it becomes a predominant object. Loud sounds, distinctive, maybe unpleasant sensations in the body or uh, loud uh, emotion in the mind or in the heart, loud thoughts in the mind. And so we have predominant objects that we also become aware of. And finally, in the course of Vipassana practice, we will eventually be able to sustain the attention on choiceless objects, meaning whatever is arising can be quite spontaneously and effortlessly known and recognized clear perception. The most distinctive object, whether it's primary, predominant, or otherwise, is the body. Sensations in the body are located in time and place, and they're very tangible. And so they're the easiest, uh, most distinctive object to pay attention to initially, especially when the awareness or mindfulness is weak. <clears throat> and what is it that we notice about the nature of the body? Well, we notice its unpleasantness. We also notice its pleasantness. We notice sometimes the subtlety of experience, sometimes how gross physical experience is. Most of it is familiar, but occasionally there's some novel or newish or unfamiliar experience in the body. But in all of this, what we're actually feeling is not the anatomy of the body. What we're knowing is not the anatomy or the functioning of the body. We're noticing just these, well, very impersonal qualities of physical experience. Hardness, tightness, tingling, pressure, heat, coolness, aching, stretching. Is that you? It doesn't make any sense to say, oh, this hardness, this is me. But when we say, oh, this, this ache in the back, that's mine, you can see with that that we're adding a spin to it. We're adding a comment to it. We're adding an ownership to what is it's not owned. It just arises due to causes and conditions. But what we see is the body in its uh, kind of experiential, or see it from an experiential place. It's sometimes very difficult to um, align our direct experience of the body with anatomy or with a sense of uh, health, because sometimes what we feel in the body is, well, 
someone came in the other day and they were talking about uh, an experience they'd had where <clears throat> the mind is very still and very concentrated and in the course of which it was noticed that the body was lifting off of the cushion. Wait a minute. Does that really happen? So I said, did that really happen? Did you open your eyes and check it out? No. But it felt like that. It felt like the body was so light that it could float away. Well, that's not, that's not our common experience. But it is an experience that awareness or mindfulness has of the body at different times. There are equally other um, what I call distortions of body. Sometimes the body feels tremendously large. Sometimes it feels microscopically small. Sometimes it feels immensely heavy. Sometimes it feels very light. Sometimes it feels like your arm is where your ear should be or your head is where your feet should be. And it, things get really dislocated. Now, if you believe the spin that your mind wants to put on these direct experiences, you'll go to the doctor or you'll go to the psychiatrist. <laughs> Mindfulness cuts through this spin. Mindfulness sees through the stories we tell ourselves about our experience. So we have to be careful to not believe the stories and just see things for what they are. So we see the body. What we also see is the natural activity of mind. If the eyes are open, they see. The ears are hearing all the time. The body is feeling sensations or there are sensations appearing in the body at all times. So too, there are thoughts appearing in the mind continuously. The mind thinks. It is natural for the mind to think. It's not wrong for you to notice thinking. It would be wrong to think you have to get rid of your thoughts. You don't try to get rid of the sounds that your ears hear. You don't try to get rid of the sights that your eyes see. Sometimes we try to get rid of the sensations we're feeling in the body, but it's impossible, just as it is impossible, generally, to get rid of thoughts in the mind. It's helpful to begin to recognize the quality of thoughts because, well, we notice them. And if we just say thinking again, you can, you can notice the attitude of mind in the tone of your noting. There's some chagrin, some frustration, some disappointment, some anger, some irritation, some impatience, which are also natural activities of mind. These things arise, thoughts, feelings, emotions, judgments, comments, rehearsing, all of these things arise due to causes and conditions. Whether you intend it or not, they arise. See, see them for what they are, the natural activity of mind. Nothing that you think, nothing that you feel, nothing that you, no comment, no judgment, is a mistake. It arises due to causes and conditions, most of which we have no immediate willful control over. Nevertheless, we still see them. 
as we develop awareness, we see this natural activity of mind. We also see, and I'm, as, you, as you can hear, I'm going from the physical experience, which is very obvious, very tangible, very discreet, to thinking, which is pretty no very noticeable, even though we can't locate it often, to something that's more subtle, and this is the natural activity of the mind, the functional automatic activity of the mind, such as perception the capacity of the mind to recognize what is being known, to recognize the kangaroo instead of a human, to recognize the subtlety of the subtlest mental states as being either pleasant or unpleasant. There's also the natural activity of mind of feeling, feeling the pleasant, unpleasant, or just to feel the quality of the experience. We can't stop the mind from feeling. We can't stop the mind from perceiving, generally, unless you undertake some intense and very concentrated meditation practice, of course. You can always do that. But in our ordinary wakeful life, feeling, perceiving, and cognizing happen spontaneously, functionally, continuously. It's not a mistake to notice them. Don't judge yourself for noticing that this is what the mind is doing. Because of these, these are natural activities of mind, they're inevitably going to come into view of awareness. And finally, there's the very subtle nature of mind that we know. And the nature of the mind is to know. The nature of the mind is to know. We live in this knowing, this continual knowing all the time. And quite often, we don't recognize that knowing is happening. It is the natural function of the mind. It is the nature of the mind to know. A corpse doesn't know anything. There's no knowing going on. It's not hearing the sounds, it's not feeling anything, it's not hungry, it's not full, it's not comfortable, it's not uncomfortable. It doesn't know anything. What knows is the mind. All that we know is the activity of the mind. It is the nature of the mind to know this. It's a subtle but, well, very distinctive, once it's pointed out, a very distinctive experience that's occurring moment by moment. Sayadaw Tejaniya goes on to say that while we develop awareness of all of these mental and physical phenomena, awareness alone is not enough. Why? Why isn't it enough to just be aware of all this? Well, because we often understand our experience wrongly. We don't understand it correctly. And so we make much ado about nothing significant. There's a phenomena 
that occurs in yogis in retreat. Luckily, haven't noticed it yet, but on longer retreats it's pretty, pretty noticeable and we call it yogi mind. Yogi mind is the magnification of the insignificant to crisis proportion. <laughs> Where you take this littlest thing, but because it's, you know, the mind is so concentrated and so powerful, it just blows it up into this crisis, catastrophe. Well, we're doing that in little ways in our life a lot of the time. We see something, we hear something, we feel something in the body, and we make a big to-do about it wrongly. We understand this experience wrongly. So the Buddha says, and Sayadaw is referring to having the right view about our experience. Now, what is the right view, or what is a skillful view? The skillful view of any experience is that understanding that leads to the end of suffering. If you understand something wrongly, it can lead to unhappiness and frustration and disappointment and judgment and fear and criticism. And if you understand it rightly, it doesn't. It leads to liberation. It leads to release from those defilements. Okay. When Sariputta, who was the right-hand right hand monk of the, of the Buddha, second to the Buddha in wisdom, was asked, what are the conditions for the arising of right view? If right view is so important, it is the understanding that leads to the end of suffering. If it's that important, what gives rise to right view in the mind? And he said there are two conditions. The first is a little counterintuitive, so I want to mention it and explain it a little bit. The first condition for the arising of right view in the mind is you need to hear it from someone else first. Wait a minute. You mean we can't figure it out for ourselves? Well, frankly, no. Well, the Buddha did. <laughs> well, as one of my collaborating teachers said, yeah, and you're not no Buddha. <laughs> because it, this is the uniqueness of a Buddha. It is a Buddha who understands, who arise, arrives at the right view of suffering and the end of suffering. That is the distinguishing quality of a Buddha. They arrive at this understanding without having heard it from someone else. Let's save ourselves a whole lot of time, lifetimes, and just listen to what the Buddha said. Now, that's only one condition. The second condition is you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention, careful attention, to your own experience to arrive at right view. After having heard it from someone else. The Buddha said, 
I teach suffering and the end of suffering. But he also acknowledged that what the Buddha could know, if he put his mind to it, was infinite, could know anything. And when he was asked questions about, you know, are there angels, are there demons, you know, what happens to an, a fully enlightened person after they die, and, you know, all kinds of metaphysical speculative questions, he would refuse to answer them saying, even if you knew, it wouldn't help you or it wouldn't lead you to understand suffering and the end of suffering. Or before you could find the answer to these questions, you would die many times over still looking for the answer. Instead, he directed us and those at his time, during his time to look for ourselves at suffering, the causes of suffering, to discover the end of suffering. If right view, having heard right view, is so important to us in our practice, and we are carefully paying attention to our experience, what right views should we hear in order to practice effectively? Because the Buddha said a lot. You know, there's 40 volumes of what the Buddha said, and that, that's a lot to kind of sift through to figure out or to, to, to pick out the few nuggets of right view that are really essential for our practice here. One right view. All physical and mental experience are natural occurrences of causes and conditions. There is no mistake. There's no error. There's nothing happening that shouldn't be happening. These are all natural phenomena. Whatever you have experienced today is following the natural laws of mind and matter. There are biological laws, including you know, genetics and you know, all the laws of biology. There are the physical laws of, you know, like the law of gravity and other physical laws. There's the law of the unfolding of the mind. There's the law of karma. There's the law of the dharma. All that we experience is a natural outgrowth or a natural expression of these natural laws. Okay, that means whatever we experience is okay. No matter how wacky it gets, no matter how unfamiliar, no matter how extravagant, no matter how It's a natural occurrence. The second right view is experience arises due to causes and conditions. It's not accidental. But most experience does not arise with our permission or due to our will. And we can see that. You know, if you step outside this afternoon, 
the body's going to feel hot. And for most of us, it's going to feel uncomfortable. There's nothing personal about it. This is a natural result of causes and conditions. But when we look at the mind, we think, wait a minute, causes and conditions? Yeah. So much of what occurs in the mind or rises in the mind is due to causes and conditions that we're not aware of. You know, we think, hey, I'm trying to be mindful. And we can, you know, you sit down with all good intentions and you're really making an effort. And, you know, the mind is mindful for a split second or two. And then it's off in la-la land. How come? Causes and conditions. It's not a mistake. You're not doing anything wrong. You did everything right. But there are causes and conditions at play that are just more powerful, really, than our intention. Oh. Well, this allows us, if we really listen to this, if we really hear this, this allows us to stop judging ourselves, to stop judging our practice, to stop judging our experience, and to, yes, to make our best effort, to know that we are doing what we can. We're adding a condition and a cause in each moment as best we can to be aware, but we can't control it. Don't take, don't, 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 don't blame yourself for what you experience. It's not under your control to control your experience or to determine whether you're going to be mindful or not. That's not your choice. It depends on conditions, causes and conditions that are beyond your control. This is a relief, actually. You know, all we got to do is just show up, do our best. That's good enough. That's all you can do. If we really could hear this, We'd stop judging ourselves. I had this experience when I went to Burma and I was practicing with Upandita. And as, as many of you know, he's a very uh, demanding uh, teacher, really expects a lot. And you really, have to, uh, you really have to show him that you are working really as hard as you can. And for the first couple of weeks, you know, I would go every day and report. and. You know, I could see practice was getting a little better. The momentum was picking up, and it was a little more continuous, and the defilements weren't lasting quite as long. The mind wasn't wandering quite as long. I was getting a little more comfortable in the body. I could see this, you know, and day to day, day by day, I'd grin and report, and I knew I was doing good enough, okay. You know, and he would just listen and say, okay, yeah, keep going, keep going, keep going. But after a couple of weeks, I don't know what happened, or I didn't know at the time what happened, but all hell broke loose. I mean, my practice totally collapsed. You know, I felt like I couldn't remember from one split second to the next what I was doing or how to be mindful or anything. I, I was just totally just overwhelmed with, well, apparent chaos and, and just, the, the, just incessant restlessness. So I didn't really want to go report that day. So I went to the door of, of Saido's room, where I usually walk through, walk across the room, bow to him, uh, give my report. It's translated. and get. It. But this day, I kind of just stuck my head in the door and said, oh, <clears throat> not doing, I'm not feeling too well today. I, I'll, I'll come back tomorrow. 
And, and usually Sayadaw is just sitting there, just kind of working on his talk for the evening and not paying much, well, seemingly not paying much attention until you get there and, and, and do your bows and, and recite, report your experience. But as soon as I kind of stuck my head in the door, he goes, huh? I'm like, what? You know, and it was translated what I said. And uh, I was not allowed to leave. <laughs> oh, come in, come in, come in. I, I want to hear all about this, you know, <laughs> or something like that, you know. And so I went in, and I was just this, I was so vulnerable, and I was so insecure, and I was so judgmental and critical of my practice. And then I, I just didn't want to say anything about it because it was so bad, I thought. So, you know, I, I, it was the first time I ever saw Saito Upandita act like your favorite uncle. <laughs> like, oh, gee, tell me all about it. What's going on? So I, I, they coaxed it out of me. The translator was encouraging. He says, go ahead, go ahead. So I just told him what was going on. It was a mess. It was terrible. I, couldn't, I didn't even know how to talk about it. It was just awful. And the longer I talked, the bigger smile Sayadaw got. <laughs> At the end of my pitiful report, he says to me, in, in glowing, smiley things, he says, you know, sometimes when the yogi thinks they're doing really good, the teacher knows, mm, well, not so good. But sometimes when the yogi thinks they're doing really bad, the teacher knows they're really doing good. With that, I, somehow I just stopped judging my practice. It's like, okay, I don't know what's going on. I don't know whether I'm doing good or not. I'm making my effort. Whatever I experience, I'll live with it. It is such a relief. Well, first, to work with someone that's that demanding because you don't get away with anything. And you don't need to. Everything's okay, no matter what your experience is, no matter what you think about your practice. That's not important. What's important is that you're making the effort. And when we can stop judging our practice, when we have this right view that things happen due to causes and conditions, you don't have control over all of it. When you have this view and it's really in there, you can just practice. It doesn't matter what your experience is. Pleasant, unpleasant, familiar, totally unfamiliar. It doesn't matter. It is such a relief to step out of our petty, judgmental, critical mind. And just to see things as they are. Just see, this is the way it is. And to be able to say it, this is the way it is. No shame, no blame, no. It's a big relief. The third right view that I want to mention is that all that we experience is as the Buddha instructed us, or encouraged us, or exhorted us to understand this is not me, not mine, not who I am. That's a hard one because it's so counterintuitive. It feels like it's all about me, who I am, and what I want, and how I am. And it's not. And so to hear that is difficult to believe. You don't have to believe it. You just have to hear it. Let it go in there. Not me, not mine, not who I am. All that you experience, not me, or let's put it this way, all that I experience 
not me, not mine, not who I am. With this subtext, I don't believe it. <laughs> That's okay. Just, just let it sink in there. Because as you practice, you will see confirming experience. You will gain this understanding. Not because you're, you're trying to see things that way, or you're trying to believe, believe what the Buddha said. It's because if you practice correctly, this is what you'll see. This is a very, well, it's an important uh, understanding to hear in practice so that as we practice, we can begin to confirm it for ourselves. Meditation is the work of the mind. Awareness alone is not enough. The right view is important to hear, and careful attention will confirm it. This is our practice. The purpose of our practice is to grow in understanding. If we hear right view and we practice effectively, we will grow in wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to know what is skillful, what is unskillful, what leads to suffering, what leads to the end of suffering. We can only know that for ourselves when we pay careful attention. And gradually we'll learn what thoughts, what feelings, what intentions lead to entanglement and suffering, and which lead to disentangling and the end of suffering. This knowledge can only be gained from our direct experience. We can read it in a book. We can read about others' experience. But that's just hearing the right view. That's not confirming the right view. Whether you believe it or not is not the answer. You hear right view and believe it, that's not confirmation. It's only through practice in seeing through our own experience, what leads to suffering, what leads to the end of suffering, that we're able to confirm for ourselves the wisdom of the Buddha. I'd like to end with another observation from Sayadaw Tejaniya. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more. And this will help you to do well in life. When your understanding of the way things are grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities will change as well. With this change priorities, you'll practice more. 
and this will help you to do well in life. So let's sit for a moment and let the words settle down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.